When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The science behind persuasion may be a little more complicated than you think. Sure, we all would like to believe that we carefully consider our options and don't rush into important decisions. We like to think that we're informed, but sometimes it just doesn't matter. Sometimes when we hear the right things in just the right way, we might compromise our ethics or intelligence. This can happen in small circumstances, feeling persuaded to give someone a gift because they gave you one, things of that nature. But small, consistent behaviors can persuade people too. In one study, researchers found that in one neighborhood, only a small number of homeowners were willing to put up a large drive safely sign in their yard. However, in another neighborhood close by, about four times as many homeowners were willing to put up the sign because days prior, they were asked to put a little card in their window that said drive safely in support of the mission. Small commitments bit by bit can lead to greater commitments later on. Sometimes persuasion can be used in an ethical or at least harmless way, like with the drive safely sign. But more often than not, we've seen persuasion used in dangerous ways. Maybe that's in a cigarette commercial, or maybe it's by cult leaders and politicians. And on today's episode of Dark Dives, we're going to explore some of the, no pun intended, darker examples. You know, it's not that hard to shift people along a progression. and different cults shift people along different ones. And the you know, impression is what we get from our senses you know, and how we interpret it and interpret the world around us. You know, I have a certain impression of this table. Besides the impression of its color and its people play games, friend. They lie, they lie. What can I do about lies? Are you people going to leave us? I just beg you, please leave us. Bill, we will bother nobody in the vibrant community. I would never have imagined that 24 hours later those people would be dead. We'll start with cults because, well, I think it's kind of the obvious example. When you're thinking about evil people and master manipulators using persuasion to get their way, you're probably thinking about coercive persuasion, also known as brainwashing. The term brainwashing is more familiar to us because it's what the media uses but scientific literature is going to use the words coercive persuasion to talk about this kind of thing. So to start with, as Cult Education Institute explains, there are a few factors that make this method coercive and not harmless. For one, there's a reliance on intense interpersonal and psychological attack to destabilize an individual's sense of self. This is the whole making you question who you are aspect within a cult. It makes you dependent. For two, there's an organized peer group. Coercive persuasion doesn't happen at random. And for three, that same group will apply interpersonal pressure to promote conformity, making you just like them. And of course, lastly, fourth, brainwashing involves the manipulation of the totality of the person's social environment. This is when groups may cut you off from the outside world completely so that there's no hope of you going back to your old life. If you view it in steps, slow, gradual compromises, it feels more realistic. 
Because let's be honest, when we hear former cult members telling their story, discussing how their clothes, husbands, and even the number of children they could have was decided for them, we might think it sounds unrealistic. I'd never fall for that or let someone make that decision for me, right? But no one approached these people and said, you're gonna marry Joe and have two children maximum. Instead, cult members gave over their lives in pieces, and by the time they realized it, it was too late to take it back. This is what happened to Alexandra Stein. When she joined the organization, or the O, it was to contribute to social justice. She did what was asked of her, like working in the group's bakery and writing computer programs, and even regularly questioned how her actions would help with the end mission, justice for the poor and powerless. She was told that she was developing and transforming herself to be ready to fight for liberation. Quote, Meanwhile, we foot soldiers were so exhausted by the double shifts we worked year in and year out, the endless criticisms and self-criticisms, the leadership's frowning upon any joy and spontaneity that we no longer had the energy nor wit to keep asking questions. Alexandra became powerless. She became the exact kind of person she wanted to help with her work. She did leave, and this may be a less extreme example of a cult, but the reason I thought it was a useful example is because it's so easy to imagine any of us falling for this. Think about it. How many of you have wanted to make a difference for say like the LGBTQ community, for the Black Lives Matter movement, environmental welfare and sustainability? In recent years, more and more people have protested, voiced their frustrations. I don't think it's a stretch to imagine turning that protesting into action. Maybe you've signed up for one. Maybe you've asked to volunteer. Maybe they tell you they need more volunteers to take more hours. Maybe they give you harder and harder tasks until bit by bit, you find yourself in the position Alexandra was, being fed a bunch of bullshit and giving out free labor in the hopes of making a change. And naturally, of course, there's a more extreme end. Let's talk about a cult that's a little bit more familiar to us, Nexium and its leader, Keith Rainier. Once more, Nexium and Keith didn't open up with demanding you become branded. Instead, it preached quite the opposite, empowerment. Remember, his MLM disguised itself as a professional development seminar, as a helpful tool, and it promised that if you joined, you would be able to rewire your emotional self. But this rewiring itself was a kind of persuasion or brainwashing. After all, it wasn't just Keith that ran Nexium. Nancy Salzman is often forgotten about, but she too was the brains behind the operation. According to the New York Times, she had training in neuro-linguistic programming, which involves hypnosis and creating a deep rapport with another person. The New York Times explains this by giving the example of Jacqueline, one of her clients. Jacqueline was afraid of flying, and one time she had to leave a plane she'd boarded because of her phobia. Nancy didn't just bring Jacqueline out of her shell. She'd learned that her client's mother was treated badly by her father, who often forced the family to move around, often by plane. Quote, Listening to Salzman's questions, it became clear that she was positing these issues. Jacqueline's fear of flying, her belief that her mother was forced into a terrible life by her father, and her inability to be an independent woman were connected. Nancy told Jacqueline that it's okay to be dependent on a man and had the other agree to do a scary thing every day for a month. Finally, on day 30, she would face her fears. This kind of penance was key to Nexium, just as this dependency was too. Was this really an upgrade to Jacqueline's belief system? No. Instead, it was deep manipulation rooted in her fears, twisted by Nancy. By the way, fun fact of the day, if such a thing can occur in this type of context, Nancy was actually released from prison September, 2023, less than 20 months into her three and a half year sentence. So isn't the justice system just peachy? 
It's true that she was also under Rainier's thumb, but after hearing about how she persuaded others to become literal slaves, my sympathy is quite limited. Many other former cult members, be it Nexium or something else entirely, have a similar experience with mind tricks. Your past is turned against you, the coercive control and persuasion is relentless, and victims are told that these people have their best interests at heart. In more infamous cults, such as that of Jonestown, we can even look back and pick apart the various individual persuasive tactics used to see where it all went wrong. Like how Jim Jones established credibility by forming a great connection with his members, people were drawn to the social beliefs he advocated for and he practiced what he preached, such as racial equality, quote, However, instead of a single technique being more effective than the other, it was a result of the combination of the persuasion techniques mentioned that was responsible. Jones used his credibility, skillful manipulations, authority, orchestrations of illusion of choice, and peripheral cues to persuade his members into committing acts of unaliving themselves. No matter what you want to call it, really, persuasion, control, gaslighting, manipulation, it probably applies. But while not all cults are religious and not all religions are cults, there is quite a bit of overlap between the two. Now let's get into that overlap and see how it relates to persuasion. So to be really, really clear here, I'm not talking about persuading someone to listen to a religious message. A speaker at a conference, a preacher, your boss, yeah, they're in a position of authority or expertise in a specific setting and going to persuade someone to listen to them. Most preaching to some extent is a form of persuasion. But what I do want to focus on is the more manipulative form of persuasion, like the kind used by televangelists and other prosperity gospel lovers. Let's take a look at what the science has to say about this. One paper from the University of Victoria explains that there is no single process of persuasion as it's quite a complicated thing. However, there are a few general principles followed, ones that are easily spotted in advertising. Semantic anomalies, saying something is better than the leading brand. Innovative phrases and deviations from grammar norms, that's pretty common in the commercial world. Televangelists also break messages down in a similar fashion. After all, they're appealing to the general public, not one small congregation that they need to win over. Therefore, they keep the programs fast-paced, divided into songs, multiple speakers, interviews, and a sermon. Throughout their program, they also try to persuade their audience to become a regular watcher and to respond to the program, whether through phone calls or donations. In this study, the concept of seed faith was mentioned because it's believed that televangelists use possibility thinking to persuade their viewers. Possibility thinking is pretty much exactly as it sounds. It's possible that if you follow the way of life your pastor wants, you'll have favor with God. It's possible that if you donate a bunch of money to their church, it will come back to you in a big way. It may not be a guarantee, but don't you wanna stick around and see if it happens? When you pick apart the preaching even further, an interesting thing actually starts to happen. For example, Oral Roberts would say, God wants to bless and prosper you, purposely deviating from grammar norms. Quote, the more conventional way of saying, example one, would be, God wants to bless you and make you prosper. It's a subtle thing, you might even call it a mistake, but televangelists like Oral Roberts, Jerry Falwell, and Robert Schuller use these countless times. He, Jesus, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Why? Well, simply because it works, but because these are the exact same deviations used in advertising as well. 
These tiny manipulations allow for short attention spans and for listeners to focus on the positive words getting thrown at them. The televangelist's name being repeated, sometimes even more than the word God is repeated, allows for the general populace to remember them. It's all a tactic. There's a reason there's an entire book on the subject. I mean, no one's denying that TV advertising is trying to persuade you to buy something. If televangelists who claim to be doing God's work are using the same methods to talk to their congregation, then that should raise some red flags right away. But while televangelists have been, and always will be, one of my least favorite aspects of religion in general, many other parts of religious communities use persuasion in less than savory methods. Take evangelism, for example. It doesn't matter which religion is doing the door knocking, though I often find it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, the level of persuasion used can be uncomfy, to put it mildly. Some sources advocating for evangelists say that persuasion is biblical, saying that persuasion isn't manipulative. And I understand that to a degree. If you knock on a stranger's door and say, hey, can I speak to you about God today? That's not manipulative. If they say yes and offer you some water, sitting down with them and sharing your beliefs is not manipulative. But visiting multiple times, telling someone their eternal soul is at stake and tugging at their heartstrings to insist that they listen to you, that crosses a line from being generally neutrally persuasive to get off my doorstep before I call the police kind of persuasive. There are some evangelists who get this. Greg Steer wrote, quote, "'Persuasion gets a bad rap, "'especially when it comes to evangelism. "'Sure, we all know those types who take it too far. "'We've all felt that holy cringe "'when we've seen pointed fingers "'and heard repent reverberating from a bullhorn "'on the street corner. "'But I think we can all agree "'that this style of evangelism "'is more coercion than it is persuasion.'" There are anecdotal stories out there about people saying that Jehovah's Witnesses simply won't leave them alone. Maybe they're ringing the doorbell every couple of weeks insisting they come in and talk. Or maybe they travel around a neighborhood, allegedly leaving their kids in the car and get upset when turned away. Nothing is fully off the table because, well, all people are different and bound to use different methods. But the idea of simply wearing someone down, making them anxious until they finally talk to you out of defeat is a pretty nasty way to persuade someone. Thankfully, there is more talk from these evangelists about how to persuade someone and whether or not it's morally right to do so. The Gospel Coalition published an article about this which expressed that if you truly believe in religious freedom for yourselves, then it's important to extend this to others. Yes, inviting someone to join you is an inherent part of a religion, but respect is what, quote, breeds conversation. Basically, simply calling someone out as believing something stupid because it's different from you won't do you any good. That said, I think the language here advocating for challenging someone's beliefs can still be taken the wrong way too. You can challenge someone without being confrontational, a fact that seems lost on many, evangelical or otherwise. At the end of the day though, recognizing the line between religion and cult is incredibly important. By no means are they always the same, but that blur between them is eerily dangerous. Unfortunately, persuasion can be particularly nasty in other aspects of life too, and impact millions of people when used the wrong way, like in politics. This holiday season, if you wanna hear, where'd you get that? Uncommon Goods is your secret weapon. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. 
Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your whole family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Here's a few of my favorite gifts that I found on their site. So one of the things that I actually bought is called the Book Nook Reading Ballet. And I absolutely love it because I don't know why I've been really, really getting back into reading in the past couple months. And it's essentially this little wooden triangle so that you can like save your place where you are on your book, like exactly where it is. And then it also has like a little cup holder next to it. So you can have like your favorite mug with you or a cold drink or whatever. I really, really love it. And it's extremely sturdy and clearly well-built. But there's also really cool DIY kits too, like a whiskey making kit. There's like a book making kit. There's like a 24 days of tea advent calendar, a popcorn bowl that comes with a kernel sifter. There is so many cool things that you can gift this holiday season. And when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These products are often made in small batches. So shop now before they sell out this holiday season. And to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash darkdives. That's uncommongoods.com slash darkdives for 15% off. Don't miss out on this very special limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. Our beliefs are monetized and bought and sold to the most powerful bidder. Let me explain what I mean. Certain hot button issues are extremely divisive between voters like abortion rights, climate change, and gun control. I'm talking about gun violence. You know, there's never been a school shooting in a school that allows teachers to care. If you want to sway a voter, taking a stance on something like this is crucial. You can persuade someone to vote for you by saying you have a plan. Sure, that's going to bring in supporters that think the same way you do. But gaining unlikely support is the tricky part, and that's where things may get murky or even manipulative. CallHub explained that in a series of experiments, it's the way a political stance is framed that can influence support. Here's how one of the studies worked. Quote, a group of conservatives and liberals were presented with one of two messages that supported an increase in military spending. One message focused on national pride and unity at home and abroad. The other stated that increased funding would help the poor and disadvantaged achieve equal standing through the military, end quote. Conservatives were more likely to support the first message and liberals were more likely to support the second, but the message ultimately is the same, increased military spending. This doesn't mean that any politician presenting both of these messages is a downright liar or master manipulator, but it does mean they're twisting their ethics to fit whoever they're talking to it's subtly sneaky. Even good politicians do this. I'm not trying to say that you're evil for putting your best face on in front of a crowd and conveying what values are important. However, in a country where compromise is so hard to come by these days, it's crucial to know which side of the aisle someone is going to vote on. You can't appease everyone after all. Yet a 2015 study found that politicians are able to convince voters that they're on the same side of an issue, even when they're not. Neil Malhotra, a Stanford professor of political economy, said that legislators can put on a completely different face depending on who they're talking to. This is different from typical persuasion or be your best self or a subtle change in the way a message is delivered. Instead, it's downright choosing what bits and pieces you tell voters about yourself. One Senator can tell pro-immigration voters about an amendment that allows for more green cards while telling anti-immigrant voters that she believes in an amendment that provides border security. 
It's playing both sides of the field without downright lying. In my opinion, this is where things get nasty. Whoever you're voting for, you want them to stand for something, not be bent by money or power. You wanna know the whole truth, not what someone chooses to tell you. Like, is it really so great that someone says women should have rights if they're supporting Roe v. Wade being overturned? What you say and what you do should match. This level of tailored messaging has yielded incredibly results though. When senators do this, curating their messages, only about half of voters can identify which position they take. Undecided voters and even voters on the opposite side of the political aisle can be convinced of a false should as if it were a coin flip because of how a message is delivered. That's what makes persuasion so effective. At the end of the day, persuasion itself is not necessarily about having a compelling message, but being able to deliver a message in a powerful, impactful way. Importantly, this study also explains why Congress is so polarizing when the American people aren't quite as divided. That's not to say we're not divided at all, we very much are, but there are still many voters open to compromise and civility even when Congress isn't. Quote, these people are good strategic communicators who can potentially take very extreme positions that are out of step with their constituents, but then massage them with language, Malhotra says. Hopefully our study will encourage others to look at this explanation for polarization as well, end quote. While this first portion of the study focused on letters around immigration, this has also been incredibly effective online with the use of social media. Now, this doesn't mean that every opinion or conviction you have can be changed. For example, if you have a negative view about a specific person, that's less likely to change than a view about a specific policy. Like many people absolutely loathe Donald Trump. It probably wouldn't matter what he said. Those that stand firmly against him would not vote for him again. However, some of his policies or political stances could be presented in a way that's appealing, even if you disagree with them, should the presenter take a nuanced enough stance. The New York Times has also talked about this and a portion of the study that used same-sex marriage as the topic. First, the message was framed in terms of equality because, you know, gay people also deserve equal rights, duh. Liberals agreed with this message as expected. However, conservatives were more likely to actually agree that same-sex couples should be allowed to get married if the message presented to them was that same-sex couples are proud and patriotic Americans who contribute to American economy and society, end quote. Regardless of contribution to the American economy, same-sex couples should be allowed to get married, but it's interesting how this worked out. Voters, be they liberals or conservatives, can be persuaded to alter their view and change their mind based on how a message is presented to them. But at the end of the day, the way this is treated by politicians is where the harm can be done. This message altering is used to gain votes and gain power. It's a quote, exercise in targeted strategic persuasion when it could be an exercise in seeing other people's perspectives. Quote, to do it, you have to get into the heads of the people you'd like to persuade, think about what they care about and make arguments that embrace their principles. If you can do that, it will show that you view those with whom you disagree not as enemies, but as people whose values are worth your consideration." End quote. I'm not about to sit here and sing Kambaya and say that every person can be reasoned with, because I don't think there's any way to meaningfully change the mind of an absolute racist bigot. That's just not happening. And there will always be some things that are polarizing when it comes to human rights. But treating persuasion as a tool to understand someone is a possibility that isn't being considered. Instead, persuasive tactics have been weaponized for so long that the word itself 
conjures up the image of a Snow White-esque villain pushing a poisoned apple on you? At least it does in my mind. But what do we do next? How do we recognize if we're being lied to versus being debated? Persuasion is a part of our everyday lives. Adding insurance to an order, using deceptive payment patterns in video games, all of those things are little persuasions, little ways that consumers might be convinced of something. But when persuasion becomes manipulation, whether through a politician or a religion, that's when we need to be wary. Ethical persuasion is moving someone to a position they don't hold, but doing too with properly framing arguments, presenting supporting evidence, and finding a correct emotional match with your audience. This is the definition Jay Conger gave when writing for Harvard Business Review. I agree with him, and with Professor Raymond Ross, who says that democracies use ethical persuasion when they elect leaders and establish laws, because ethical persuasion relies on values and facts to make its arguments. Manipulation relies on distorting those facts or even withholding them. Neglecting to mention that you voted for an anti-immigration policy while discussing a pro-immigration amendment? Yeah, that could be considered manipulative. It's removing free choice if it's coercive. Obviously, intention comes into play here, which can make things trickier to dissect, but the point remains the same. Persuasion is a powerful tool, and depending on who wields it, a dangerous one too. 